And I was reminded by that because this week, Brad led a funeral for an angel in our congregation. I don't want to tell you about this angel because you know her, but because you should have, because she was wonderful. Her name was Ruth Capuano. And Ruth Capuano was a 90-year-old saint in our church who, when she first started coming to this place in 99, uh, she, uh, in 99, she was uh, 69 years old. It was beautiful how she just threw herself into the life and rhythm of our church. Ruth died single, and most of her life she spent actually single. And for her, this is a beautiful testimony to what it means to follow Jesus. That wasn't something to be grieved, but celebrated. She used her life to glorify God. Singleness wasn't a barrier to relationship. It was just a reason for her to love more people well. Ruth was the person who baked millions, not millions, maybe that's a bit of exaggeration, preacher hyperbole, thousands of melting moments just so that she could contribute to this building that we now all sit in. When I first was a youth pastor here, Ruth ran up to me every day that she was here and she would hug me and give me a kiss, say, we're praying for you, love. And I'm like, why is it like 85-year-old praying for me? This is, but that's who Ruth was. It wasn't about her. She believed in the next generation. And the reason why I wanted the youth to be here is because I wanted to give you a picture, every generation of this church, of what it means to finish the race well. Because whilst we join the Capuano family in mourning, we join with heaven in celebrating that right now Ruth has found her home in the arms of her Savior. And one day we will see her again. Amen? And on that note, in that generational light, Let's celebrate as our teenagers head out and go and enjoy their youth service as well. It's fantastic. I love how our youth leaders sit down in the front row leading us in worship. It's beautiful. Uh, They didn't do that because we asked them. They did it just because they love to sing. They love to worship. They love to be a part of that. What Ruth's story reminds us is that every great story needs a beautiful ending. But every great story also needs a beautiful beginning. And that's why we are in the middle of the book of Genesis. If it's your first time here with us today, you may not know this, but as a church this year, we believe God has called us to become more like Jesus, which you might be like, well, that doesn't sound like rocket science for a Christian to become more like Jesus. You would be surprised how rocket science that is just even to me. But our hope this year, we're reading through the Bible together. I'm not going to show, ask you to show hands. I'm just going to believe that every single person in this room, you're with us on the Bible reading plan. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Oh, wow. That was full. Someone came up to me at the start, the end of the last service, said, Michael, I can't do it because it's too small. And I, I'm like, oh, that's completely fine. That's why if you go to church.nu, you can find all the Bible readings on our website. Not only that, you can actually listen to them and read them for today. So... We removed every barrier to make it as easy as possible. Friends, I hope you're joining us. Now, if you are in the book of Genesis, we finished it yesterday. Praise God. The crazy book is over and it gets crazier in Exodus. Trust me, it's going to be a lot of fun. But part of the reason why we're doing it, we preach through Genesis, Gen- Genesis, Genesis on the way to Easter is because we believe the story of Easter doesn't begin in Jerusalem. It begins in a garden in Genesis chapter 1. And that to understand the significance of Christ's death and resurrection, we have to understand what happened at the beginning. So for those of you who came in late, maybe it's your first time in church today, and you're like, Genesis, the Bible, what's going on? I'm about to give you the rundown of where we've been the last two weeks in approximately one minute. If I speak too fast, we have a podcast where you can catch up on where we've been the last two weeks, and you can also slow my voice down as well. Two weeks ago, we launched into Genesis chapter 1. 
I preached about the idea that Genesis chapter 1 is not a scientific textbook. It's a beautiful illustration of the truth that God created all things, that He brings order out of chaos and He brings beauty out of our mess. And we realize that Sabbath is the way that God continues to order the chaos of our world. Last week, Dr. Daniel Pampook, a good friend and leader in our church, preached about the idea of Genesis chapter 2, God made man in His image. You, friends, turn the person next to you and say you. That's just to check you haven't already fallen asleep on me. You, friends, were created on purpose for a purpose, to carry the image of God and to bear His name into a world desperately needing to know His story. And this week, we don't stumble. We walk with great intentionality into Genesis chapter 3, which seeks to answer the question, if the world was created by God so good and so beautiful, and we're all meant to be images, what went wrong? See, what we've hoped to what we've hoped to illustrate through this series is that every one of us has a worldview. I'm not going to do it this week because I feel like I've already done it and it's a, fairly, it's a weird thing to do on stage. But in my first week, I put on my sunglasses and I said, you don't know this, but every single one of you, whether you're here in this room or joining us online, you have glasses on right now. You have lenses through which you look at the world. This is called a worldview. There's a Hindu worldview, an atheist worldview, a New Age worldview, and there's a Christian worldview. Not many Christians are intentional about their worldview because every worldview answers some basic questions. Hey, where did this all come from? That's a really great question every worldview answers. Second question, why are we here? What's our purpose? Which we talked about last week. And this week, we want to talk about one of the most important worldview questions of all. What went wrong? But I just want to be clear. You can't understand what went wrong unless you've walked through really Genesis 1 and 2. So if, if you miss those two weeks, it's going to be really helpful for you to go back there and just hear what we've talked about. God is good, created everything to be good, that we're in His image. And they're all on the podcast because this week, the fullness of Genesis chapter 3 can only be understood in the full narrative itself. So to do that, would you pray with me? Gracious God, we've got some work to do today. And Lord, I need your help that we would uh, be here only a brief amount of time, but we would hear mainly your voice that you would speak louder than I do. That God, people wouldn't remember the name of Michael, but would be drawn to the name of Jesus today. Because only you can save. And we need you right now. So less of me, we pray. More of you. In Jesus' name, we all said, Amen. Amen. So great stories. It's my belief. All great stories have a great problem. If I was going to ask you what your favorite movie was, I would guarantee whatever movie you came up with, would have been a narrative and at the center of it was more than likely a great problem. When someone gets asked, what's your favorite movie? Very few people are like, oh, I really love the documentary about you know, watching roses grow. Now that might be interesting, but it's no one's favorite. Why? Because there's no real great tension there. You just watch a rose grow and you find out about photosynthesis, which is beautiful, but all great narratives in all great Hollywood productions have great problems. Why is this? It's actually because Hollywood recognized that the thing most humans are looking for in this world is to see problems redeemed. Because when you watch a narrative, you, you kind of enter into a moment where you want to have hope that the worst thing is never the last thing. This is why we enjoy movies about superheroes, because it convinces us that maybe just maybe one day Iron Man will rock up and make my situation better than it is. We go to a movie to escape. 
We go to a movie to find out that romance actually does end with a, could end with a happy ending. But why do these movies attract us? They attract us not because we live in a world of happy endings. They attract us because we live in a world with great problems. We live in a world that's in pain. We live in a world that's suffering. Now, some of you are here for the first time today, and you're like, wow, what an encouraging message for my first day in church. <laughs> but I guarantee no one would argue with me. And if you do, we would only have to spend a couple minutes together on the news to come to the same conclusion that whatever the world God intended this to be, it no longer looks good all the time. What went wrong? Do you know? What does your worldview say? Now, most Christians would have a simplistic kind of answer. It's like, oh, you know, we sinned or something like that. But, but that, that is a, a surface level understanding of the core problem of the human existence. Because you see, people will ask you if they haven't already well, if God is real, why is there suffering? If God is real, why is there pain? If God is so good, why is there insert whatever the argument is? And this is what Genesis 3 offers us a worldview answer to. It takes us into the narrative to understand the root of the problem. So we step into Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where we read, Now remember, God created everything, said it was good, instituted the Sabbath. God created man and woman equally in His image and said, Guys, have fun, enjoy, take care of all creation, work and rest, multiply, go forth and take dominion of the earth. There is this sense of, of liberality, of freedom, of enjoyment of creation. And into that context, this story occurs. Genesis 3 verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's pause there. Now, when you read Genesis chapter 3, we have to recognize this is one of the most iconic, iconographic, there we go, got there eventually, stories in the Bible. If I was to say to you, what's a symbol for temptation in the secular world? Most people would give you an apple. Why? Not because that came from secularism. That comes from the narrative of the Garden of Eden. Not that it was an apple, but we'll get to that another time. When I say, hey, give me an image of temptation, most people think of a snake with two naked people. Why does that come out? Because of the narrative of the Garden of Eden. This is a cultural narrative, but it was first a faith one. Now, because we've heard it so often or seen it represented so often, we can look through this story and not be bewildered by things that are weird and ask the right questions. But when you read Genesis chapter 3, you should identify things that are not normal, things that are weird. So a quick drink break. What is weird about this story? First service people told me. But that's fine. You can just sit there and get it wrong. <laughs> Hands up if you identified the talking snake. If you didn't put your hand up, you should probably talk to someone about that. Because there's nothing normal about talking snakes. In Genesis 1 and 2, we never see animals talk. Adam's not roaming through the garden going, and I shall name you chimpanzee. The chimpanzee, good day, sir. Thank you so much. No, that doesn't happen. This isn't the prequel to Narnia, where suddenly everyone's talking and this is just normal. We should go, why on earth is there a snake talking to the woman? Good question. Understanding the Bible begins with good questions. and begins with asking every question that comes to mind. And my first question is, what the heck is a snake doing talking to the woman? 
And so we delve into it. Who is the snake? Now, the cultural Christian narrative would tell us that the snake um, is often assumed to be what many would depict as the great opposition to Christianity, to God himself. Uh, someone that an individual, a spiritual force known as the devil or the Satan, um, also known by other terms like Lucifer, the angel of light or the angel of darkness or the kingdom of darkness and these kind of things. Now, I just want to highlight, particularly for those of you who, like me, grew up in Sunday school, in all of Genesis chapter 3, did you know the snake is never once revealed to be anything other than a snake? Ever. In fact, you would not be able to deduce that this snake is Satan or the devil purely from Genesis chapter 3. That's really important to know because the question we should ask them, then why do we think that this is the devil? Now, I'm just going to teach us this because I think it's important for biblical literacy. Some of you will glaze over and switch off right now. But for those of you willing to just do a little bit of work with me, come for a quick moment. There's a great video about this on YouTube by the Bible Project under Devil and the Demons. And it highlights that the reason why we think this is uh, the devil is because in Isaiah 6, when you step around the throne, when, when Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God, he identifies that there are seraphim, an angelic being in the throne room. The Hebrew word for seraph is also the Hebrew word for snake, identifying that there were angelic beings that may have looked like snakes. Now also in Ezekiel chapter 28, you find the prophet Ezekiel prophesying to the king of Tyre, who is an angelic being that is purported to have been walking around the Garden of Eden and an act of pride and sin cast him out from God's presence. There is also other indications throughout the Bible or when Lucifer or the angel of light fell from the grace of God. These references have allowed theologians to say it might be safe to assume that the snake may very well be the devil. But here's the reason why I highlight this. The point of this story is not who is the snake. But we should ask the question, why on earth is the snake talking? The greatest answer that we could come up with is, could this be the devil? Yes. But what we can definitely say is the snake represents for us the very representative of intelligent, proud opposition to the reign of God. The snake in this story represents intelligent, proud opposition to the reign of God. Some of you thought you were coming to church to get a 20-minute message today, and you have a history lesson all about who the devil is so far. But we go further. And what is the snake trying to do? The snake in this moment asks a question which begins with four words. Did God really say? And here is how I believe most temptation begins in the human heart. Did God really say? Is it really bad? The snake comes and says to the woman something that actually grossly represents the character of God. And the snake knows it. The snake doesn't come and say, did God really say something that God actually says? The snake actually misrepresents and says something God never did say. The snake goes on and we go back and read. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Friends, whenever we hear that voice in our heads, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? That should raise red flags for us as Christians, as followers of Christ. Because what the snake is trying to do in this moment is not to go, hey, let's have a healthy conversation and just see what truth is. This is the first theological conversation in the Bible. It's the first conversation between two beings that doesn't involve God. And in this moment, it's a question which seeks to lay the foundation to attack the very character of God. Did God 
really say you must not eat from the, from the tree in the garden. What we see starting to unfold here is we see that the, that the snake is trying to question God's authority and God's ability to decide what is good. Now, why is he talking about trees? Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read that God actually gives Adam and Eve a really clear instruction. He doesn't say to them, you can't eat of any tree like the snake seems to suggest. He says in the middle there, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. God creates the whole world and says, Adam and Eve, here's a garden filled with all good things. There would have been great lychee trees in the Garden of Eden, friends. That's just because I think lychees will be the main food in heaven. Thank you. Right? But then he goes, but let, let me give you permission, but let me give you a boundary. Let me give you a boundary. You must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. See, in the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us there were two trees. In Genesis 2 verse 9, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God creates these two trees, and one, he says, the tree of life, have fun. Eat as much of that as you want. But then, apparently, God comes over here and goes, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here it is, don't eat that. Now, the next question we should ask, if we're questioning snakes, should be this one. Why on earth would God create a tree and then go, but don't eat it? Who knows, if someone puts something in front of you, and then they go, don't you dare eat that. You're going, wait till you leave the room. We'll see what happens. Why? Because there's a temptation there. Why would God do that? That's, just a healthy, that's a healthy question. And we should ask that question. God, why would you intentionally try? It's like you're saying run in a direction and then you're holding out a stick in front of our legs. Hoping that we trip. That's not the case at all. You see, this, the narrative of Genesis, in fact, the whole narrative of the Bible is a narrative of trust. God created man to be in relationship with him, to be in willful relationship with him, not coerced, not forced, willful relationship with God. There is no such thing as willful relationship if there is no choice, if there is no other option. God in this moment puts a tree in the garden and says, guys, look at all I've created for you that is good. But I want to give you the choice to say that you don't trust me that you don't think that I know what human flourishing looks like, that you don't think that I have it all together. So I will decide what is good and what is evil, but I've also put a tree in the garden, and I want you to trust that I know. So don't eat from it. But I don't want you to have to be in relationship with me. This has to be a choice. If I walked up to you today, I'm like, Dave, you got to be my best mate. And you're like, I don't want to. You're like, well, bad luck, mate. We're now best friends. I've already changed our Facebook relationship. You'd be like, that's kind of not how it works. And you'd be right. This is not a moment of God trying to force us to stumble. It's God giving us a choice. And into this moment, you see the devil, the, the snake, step in and begin to question. Because I believe the snake knows this. The human who was caused to be the image of God and bless everything horizontally. The only thing the snake has to do to disrupt the humanity fulfilling its purpose and walking in its identity is to disrupt its vertical relationship with God. So he steps in, doesn't question, hey, do you really want to do all this work? Doesn't step in and go, hey, you know, maybe we could kick it back a little bit. Hey, you're not really a son or a daughter of God. No, he steps in and goes, can you really trust that? 
And this is the core of all that is wrong in the human heart. But Eve is not fooled. Eve's done the first year of Bible college, so she comes back with a great answer. That's a joke that's only funny to me. I recognize that. No one ever laughs. I'm just having fun on stage by myself. Genesis chapter 3, verse 2, Eve comes back. He's like, ha-ha, I'm better than you. I know a little bit of Greek. The woman said to the sermon, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, so she says, no, 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 you got it wrong. He didn't say no tree. He said we can eat any tree. But you must not eat from that tree. That is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Eve knows. I want you to highlight here, why do we often think Eve goes to eat from the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sometimes we can think it's because, well, so that Eve wants to know what's right and what's wrong. And she doesn't get to know that because that's only God's role. No, 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 no. What Eve demonstrates to us here is that she already knows what's good. She already knows what's evil. Doesn't she? She turns around and goes, well, no, 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 no. You got it wrong, Satan. Let me tell you. It's good for us to eat from any tree in the garden. Nothing bad will happen but there is an evil that will come if I eat from that tree. And God has told me that's good and that's evil. And what's Eve saying here? I'm going to trust God. And this is where the snake gets a little bit deceptive. He goes, ah, you will not certainly die. You won't get caught. It won't be as bad as God says it will. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from, the, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The snake tempts Eve by saying, God is holding back from you. God is holding back from you. That not eating this tree is actually God's moral oppression of your ability to be like God. Now, why should this alarm us? Because in chapter 2, we find out that they are images of God. What does it mean to be an image of God? They were made like God. The snake tells her something's not real that God has declared is true. The issue isn't them being like God. The issue is the snake is saying, you can have the moral authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. See, this is the temptation in the garden. It's not that God had a thing against apples. It's that God is saying, trust my decision that what I tell you was right and what I tell you was wrong. And the snake comes along to Eve and goes, what if he's holding out? What if what he said is wrong is actually really fun? Try it. Do you not hear the voice that many of us all hear every day? Every week, when we make decisions about money, about sex, about how we treat our family, how we work, how we operate, and this conscience, this Holy Spirit's voice comes along and says, hey, I don't, that's, that's not right. What would God know? I think I have a better way. See, the ultimate temptation in the garden is a temptation to not stop trusting, the temptation is to change what you trust in. It's not going to be as bad as you think, the snake whispers. Trust in yourself. Sounds a lot like the modern dilemma of morality. 
See, what we find in the Garden of Eden at this moment is that moral freedom is beckoned to be apart from the rule of God. And we think this is a modern issue. Do we not hear this is called what I'd call moral autonomy or moral relativism? What does that mean? I get to decide what is right. Don't you dare use an age-old religion or faith or oppressive structure to tell me what's right. I've been here for 29 years, baby. I've been here 32. I'm a fake person right now. I've been here 29 years and I know what is good. I will decide for me and you can decide for you. And we'll all decide for ourselves. How's that working out for us? And we're like, no, 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 well, Michael, it's not about deciding for yourself. You can, you can choose what's right and what's wrong as long as you don't hurt other people. Okay, well, the next question to that would be, well, who decides what hurts other people? Who decides what's actually harmful to other people? And then, we'll, oh, okay, well, well, we'll do it democratically and everyone will just vote on what's right and what's wrong. So for everyone to vote on what's right and what's wrong, all you need to do is convince the majority that something is right. And it doesn't matter as long as the majority are in agreement that it's not hurting other people, even if it is. This is exactly how evil tyrannies and dictatorships have arisen. One person shouting long enough and loud enough and people begin to believe a truth that started as a lie. Well, it's not going to hurt you. Uh, it might hurt them, but <laughs> that's them. Am I right? You're going to be great. When we don't have a moral objectivity, when we as, as humans remove this sense of an initial, what C.S. Lewis would call the moral law, we actually don't have any moral ground to stand upon. Who are you to tell someone that what they're doing is wrong? Well, it's not right. Why? Well, it's the law. Well, what about things that aren't the law? You have no moral grounding. Why? Because there's no moral objectivity. If people can decide what is right and what is wrong for themselves, friends, you don't get an opinion. Whatever's right for you is right for you. Whatever's right for me is right for me. Do you understand how moral autonomy actually leads to a degrading society that is filled with social injustice? It's an idea of the strong will rule and the weak will be mis misheard or not heard at all. This is not the way of God. And we're in a moment in society that we think is new because of the 1960s and 70s sexual revolution or the enlightenment. Friends, this has been happening since the garden. Mankind has said, God, you step off the throne. I think I can do a better job. I know that you claim to be eternal, but I have been here for a couple of years now and I think I've got it. John Mark Comer says it like this, moral relativism is moral anarchy. The primal temptation in the story of Genesis here is to redefine what is good and evil based on the desire in their hearts and the voice in their head. Rather than, one, rather than one what God said was good and evil in order to seize autonomy from God and to become your own God. This is the primal temptation for every single generation. Every single generation. And it fails to recognize this, friends. What is broken cannot fix itself. Something that has only been alive for, let's say you've been here for 90 years, should struggle to define what is eternally good for something that has existed for thousands of years longer than your existence. What is our moral truth? This is the sin of what happens in the garden. And so Eve longs for it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Let me just pause there for a second. When the woman saw that the, tree, uh, that the fruit of the tree was good for, good for, 
You need to say it louder. Someone else is asleep next to you. Good for? Great. They just woke up. Welcome back. God loves you. There's this moment, right, where it's good for food. What was Eve surrounded by? The, the lie of temptation is what you want is what you need. God had provided what she needed, but what she wanted was something else. It was around for good for food and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Let me just real quick sidebar. People use Genesis 2 and 3 especially to debate that because woman came from the rib of man and because woman handed man the fruit, they, there seems to be this narrative in Christianity that that therefore is the reason why women are not equal to men. You probably heard the joke. It's like, well, you came from my rib, baby. I'm not sure who says that. That just came to my head just then. <laughs> or the idea of like, well, you did eat the fruit, didn't you? As if they were there. When you read the Bible like that and one gender is oppressed and another is elevated, you are reading it wrong. Man and woman was created equally in the image of God. In fact, the only time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 where, I didn't say this in the first service, added extra for all those joining us online. 1, 2, and 3, where it says man should rule over women is as a result a curse, the product of the sin. That the idea of man being better than women is a fruit of brokenness, not of God's good order. So when we start to highlight these things, what we should be trying is living a redeemed, restored Genesis narrative. Not one that continues to celebrate the brokenness caused by our selfishness. So it's going to highlight that, friends. If our reading of the Bible elevates one gender over the other, I, I firmly believe we've been wrestling and praying through this for a long time. We're reading it wrong. And later this year, I look forward to, reading the, uh, to preaching a sermon around why we believe women can lead and women can preach here at New Life. Encourage you to be there. It'll be fun. Maybe. Who knows? Haven't written it yet. <laughs> what happens in this moment is not a woman being the worst because the man was right next to her. It wasn't like Adam rocked up. like, oh, what are you doing? He was watching the whole time. And he ate it. And in the moment, the theologians say that what happened is that their heart curved in on themselves. I'm not going to get Joshy on platform, but ultimately... In the first service, we did this thing where Josh came up and played this guitar beautifully. If I said to you, what is the purpose of this guitar? You would say, to play music. This is a tailor. It probably costs, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars. Josh is very scared right now because I'm like just throwing this around everywhere. Oh, sorry, Josh. <laughs> now, this is meant to create beauty. It was purpose to create beauty. But if I pick this up and I go, yeah, but I can't play guitar, but I can play baseball. And I would be able to hit a ball with that. And I'm just like, you know, hey, you throw a ball at me as hard as you can. This will be great. A lot of you are like, oh, this is funny. Josh is going, this is a terrible joke. And the maker of this would be deeply grieved. Why am I choosing to use this in my own way? Because I've decided that my selfish needs, my selfish needs, redetermine the purpose of the created thing. Now, what happens if someone's to pick a ball at me? So as to pick a ball at the guitar, would the guitar survive? No. It would be almost irreparably broken. Why? Because it was taken away from its created purpose and used for my own selfish gain. This is what happens in this moment. Is that humans who were meant to image God and take care of his creation 
ruin their purpose by using their life to seek their own glory, their own throne, their own king and queenship over the world, and they become irreparably broken. What we see is, is theologians say that this is the moment when Eve takes the fruit, the heart curves in on itself. Friends, this is what sin is. Some of you have been in churches where they're like, if you're doing this, you're a sinner. Newsflash, we're all sinners. But what sin actually means, it's not just an action. It is an action, but that action begins somewhere in the heart. And the reason why sin is a fruit of the heart is because our hearts are turned in on ourselves. Every time you've done something wrong, I guarantee you, you weren't thinking, what would other people like me to do right now? You're thinking, what's best for me? That's what leads to sin. Ultimately, friends, sin is selfishness. And God did not create us to be selfish. And when you look at a world and we ask these questions of why is the environment so bad? Why is there sickness? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? The Christian worldview answers it like this. This isn't the role, the, the, the result of right-wing politicians or left-wing politicians or religious institutions or some evil agenda of an Illuminati scheme trying to upend the world. Friends, it's the problem of sin. It's selfishness that has broken the world. Now, I want to be clear. People in this room are not sick because they sinned. That is not what the Bible says. But friends, we experience sickness because the world is broken by sin. There's a difference. And when we understand that, then suffering has a reason, but we recognize it wasn't God's original purpose. That every time we suffer, we should be reminded, God, why is the world not good? And God says, because I never wanted it to be broken. But this is what it looks like for man to operate outside of the moral authority of God. The world doesn't flourish. So the next part in the story happens that then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. Some of you might be going, okay, hang on. How come? Like, I thought they were naked the whole time. Like, did they eat a piece of fruit and they put on a bit of weight? And they're like, oh, now I'm really conscious of my nudity. Someone came to me one week and they're like, hey, Mark, you know they were naked in the garden. We're going to be naked in heaven because like, that'll be cool. I'm like, who are you? Go away. That's bizarre. <laughs> this isn't about nudity. It's not about us going, why are we wearing clothes? No, that's a good thing. That's good. Think about when you're naked. No, you. Think about you when you're naked. Right? Where is that? Usually it's at home. Usually it's at home where you're comfortable, where you can be vulnerable because you're safe. See, they were naked in the Garden of Eden because they were under the protection of the moral authority and plan and will of God's flourishing created order. When they stepped out of that and they're like, I'm in charge, they stepped out of the protective covenant that God had created for them. They were now God. They were now on the throne. And they were deeply unqualified for the, for the position. And suddenly they're like, oh, I am, oh no, we're naked. It's a declaration of the heart more than a clothing accessory issue. And so they hid. And God steps into the garden and he asks three questions, which we'll finish with today. He steps into the garden and we read, Then the man and woman heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them, to the man, and said, Where are you? 
Now, this was not God playing Marco Polo with Adam. This wasn't something they did every day. Marco Polo, oh, this is so much fun. In fact, the Hebrew phrasing of this word is similar to asking the question, not where are my keys, but asking a question of who moved my keys? You're not where I left you. He knows where Adam is. He's asking Adam, why did you move? And God, when we fall short of God's moral authority, when we live in selfishness, which friends is me, is you, is all of us in Romans 3.23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. God's question to us is this, why did you move? Why did you step out? I had you. Now I don't. Where have you gone? Some of you today, God is saying, where are you? Oh, I'm in church. That's got nothing to do with the state of your heart. Where are you? Where are you? And Adam, because this is the nature of sin, steps out and goes, well, I heard you coming and I realized I am unprotected and vulnerable. So I hid. This is what sin does. Sin tells us to hide. And friends, some of you have been struggling with darkness in your world. And this is the voice in your head. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Because what sin does is sin has power of you whilst it can keep you in shame. And say, well, if people found out, they would leave. Here's what I already know. God already knows your number. There's nothing you've done that's a surprise. He was there. He watched. He broke. Adam says, we realized we were naked, so we hid. And God responds with a beautiful question. Who told you that? Who told you you should eat from the tree? Who told you you should click on that website? Who told you you would gain sustenance from that sexual activity? Who told you that using your money in that way would actually give you life and life to the full? Who told you that? And Adam shows us the second result of sin. She did. Blame. Not, oh, what's the whole thing? And then I just got on the bandwagon at the end there, God. Probably should have done something about it. So sorry. It's like, oh, no, it was her fault. Trust me. She spoke to the snake. I thought speaking snakes were weird personally, but God, I just went with Eve. She was the problem. This is what sin does. Why did you click on the website? Why did you gossip about that woman? Well, if you only knew, if you only knew, if you would, we blame. What I love about Eve is what she responds. God turns to the woman and he says, what is this you have done? The woman identified the real reason why we sin. The serpent deceived me. I believed the lie. And I ate. I believe God stands in front of you all today and me. And he asks us three questions. Where are you? Who told you? Who told you that that was a good idea? Were they an eternal being that created all things in beautiful order and creativity and, and ushered you into human flourishing? Was that who told you that? Oof. It's dangerous then. What have you done? But God asks us these questions because he calls us back into relationship with him. He calls us back. He's saying, come talk to me again. Because what I love about the story with Adam and Eve is that the next thing that God does is he doesn't go, well, now you're naked and alone. Their relationship with him has forever changed and they're about to be banished. But you want to know what God does out of his graciousness? He doesn't say you better stay naked and alone and ashamed. He goes and sin always results in death. Always. But God takes what they deserve and he goes and he sacrifices an animal 
takes the animal skin and covers their shame. He says, I don't want you to live in this way. He let me cover you, let me protect you, but you've chosen to step outside my moral authority. You no longer have access to the tree of life. And then he gives things to them that are directly result of the fall. Women were already given birth. Eve was told to multiply in Genesis chapter 2, but now that would be painful. Men were already tilling the ground, but now he's told this would be hard. There'll be seasons of dry, not because God wanted this for the world, but because this is what sin does. Sin leads us into atrophy. And ever since we've been heading back from the garden, away from it, the world has been in decay. And the thing that we're cut off from, friends, is the tree of life. That's why sin leads to death. Because where is life with God? And if we've said, stuff you, God, I'm going to walk in my own. Someone's like, shouldn't have said stuff you, God, Michael. Fair call. There's this moment where we sit on the throne and we want life. You can't get it because it comes from God. Without Him, you won't have it to the full. So what do we do? Because the Bible tells us at the end of Genesis 3 that the way to the tree of life is barred. You can't get back. Well, most theologians believe the tree wasn't actually a tree. It was a relationship. A relationship with God that we could eat of the goodness of His nature, His character and His behaviour. But we were barred because of our shame. You can't get home. So home comes to you. When Jesus became a man, theologians believe the tree of life walked amongst us. How do we know this? Jesus says, I am the bread of, like three people knew that. That's great. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat of me. Eat of this. Come, come, eat this again. It's an invitation. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He comes to us in our brokenness. Jesus was the perfect Adam. He did what we couldn't do. He was tempted in the desert and said, now I'm standing on what I know God really said. He lived a life we couldn't live. He took care of everyone that came across his path. And then he died a death we should have died on a tree of death. The tree of life was massacred for our sake. Why? So you can come home. So you can come home. This is good news. This is good news. Because the first recognition we need to know to recognize the worldview of the Christian lifestyle of following Jesus is friends, you are selfish at your core. Not good. But Jesus in His goodness looks at your heart and says, let me bend it back out again. Let me restore it. I make great guitars. Let me show you how to play it beautifully once more. He asks you four questions today. Where are you? Who told you that? What is this you have done? But the last question I believe Jesus offers you this morning is, will you come home? Will you come home? And Christian and non-Christian alike, some of you have been drifting for too long and blaming God for too much. It's time. Know your heart and know the one who is the healer of it.